This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cammy here. This week's episode of the podcast is a chat with podcaster, journalist, and editor, Philip Picardi. Philip uh, first kind of came on my radar when he uh, transitioned. He started at Teen Vogue, worked at Refinery29, and I first kind of became aware of him when he became the digital editorial director at Teen Vogue. But then, most recently, um, he launched them and was the editor-in-chief of Out Magazine. Philip is a super interesting person, and we had a shorter than usual time to speak to each other because of my schedule. So please enjoy this uh, just a little briefer than usual episode of the podcast. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on, darling. I know, I know, I know it's careless. So I always have folks introduce themselves. Um, Will you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Philip Picardi. I am a journalist. I was formerly the editor-in-chief of Out Magazine, also the chief content officer of Teen Vogue. And uh, better now, I would more call myself uh, the host of Unholier Than Thou, which is a new podcast from Crooked Media. More accurately, I am a work in progress. Yeah, you know, I feel... So we don't know each other, um, but I have been watching your, you know, rise or move toward further visibility over the last couple of years. And it's just very impressive what you have been up to. Um, so first you. of all, just as a stranger, sometimes, I, I don't know, sometimes in my own experience with work, I don't know if how things seem from the outside, but it seems that you're really... Um, finding some space for yourself. How does it feel to you? That's a great question. And and first of all, thank you. I mean, I feel similarly about you. It has been really nice to watch and observe and also just hear people talk about you and speak so highly of you. So I hope that you carry those folks with you when when you're conducting yourself because it's a, it's a really wonderful thing um, always to hear good things about good people. Um, oh my gosh, that basically makes me burst into tears, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's an interesting time uh, of reflection for me, for sure. And and certainly, like you mentioned my moves towards visibility. I, you know, in a previous version of the life that I'm leading, I was very hungry for visibility. I was very hungry for success. And um, I was working in a corporation called Condé Nast, a publishing house that valued people who were very hungry for those things. And ultimately, Cameron, you know, if I'm being really frank, frank, and I and I did, I have written just a bit about this for it in different places, but that search and that desire for success ultimately left me feeling quite empty-handed and empty inside, really. And so this part of, of my journey, you know, unemployment, I was laid off in December from Out Magazine after the company faced a series of um, financial difficulties and uh, rather 
let's call them interesting business practices and an interesting <laughs> ownership structure. Um, uh-huh. And I realized that getting let go was the best thing that ever happened to me. And so I have kind of been living that this portion of my life for the past seven months or so. Um, it has been earmarked by a move to Los Angeles in the midst of a global pandemic. My husband, uh, my fiance, sorry, um, is a an emergency medicine doctor. So he flattened the curve out in New York. He was working in Queens, flattening the curve. Um, oh, wow. He helped to flatten that curve in New York. And then we arrived in LA. And then a week after we settled here, uh, it was basically announced that we would have to be going through some very similar measures all over again. That case rates were rising. That hospital bed occupancy was nearing um, its like its peak. Um, and so, yeah, so it's definitely just been an interesting whirlwind of a, of a year. But a good time, I think, um, to be at home thinking about stuff. Just like, you know, that famous Mm. Kylie Jenner quote, this is just like the year of realizing stuff. So it's kind of where I am. I mean, I'm glad that that's how it feels to you, that it's a good year of realizing stuff. I, I, for myself, um, that's actually, you know, I have, I have had like a lot of space and expansion. This is the longest I have been not performing for a live audience. Um, in ready for this number 20 years um it's also the longest i have like spent in a single place in at least 10 um and so i feel like i'm having like this sort of restlessness and anxiety and a lack of i didn't realize how much the constantly interacting with people through live performance affected how much I feel connected to the world, but like social media does not make me feel connected to the world. Mm. It turns out, um, even though that's like how I, even though that's how I feel, I know a little bit about you. It, um, doesn't make me, if it's sometimes can make me feel connected to individuals, but does not make me feel in the middle of a community. And so that's like what I'm really missing is the feeling of community, because I think I can see what individuals are saying about like, Taylor Swift's new album or the Black Lives Matter movement or literally any topic. Um, But I can't, I don't feel like I can get myself in the middle of the pack. Mm. That's really affecting me emotionally. Yeah. I, I mean, I deeply relate to that. It is really hard to be isolated. And it also made me realize how much I was craving uh, platonic intimacy. I, I lived through this mm. pandemic with a partner. Obviously, he was working, but we got a lot closer and more honest with each other than really we ever have before. In a way, I feel like this really strengthened our our relationship and our bond, and I'm grateful for that. Similarly, though, like I spend three hours a day on the phone with my friends, and that's the you know I didn't talk to my friends that much before the pandemic hit. But this need and this constant desire to be interacting with people and for closeness. Um, I don't know. I feel like that has been an important symbol to me of what I want my life and my networks to look like after after hopefully we get to to resume being with people and being in community. Yes, I could not agree with you more. I, I like fully am there, same amount of time on the phone, similar vibes. Um, I want to ask you about, and you can say, I don't know any privacy concerns, just let me know, but um, your fiance is that per- is is he currently employed in an emergency room sitting setting in LA? Is he, he is. is he working? Yes. Um, what do you? What hospital does he work at? 
And you can also I, say, I cannot oh, I disclose that. that. Yeah. For his privacy, I can't disclose that part. Um, he works in an emergency room setting though. Yes. Like he's an ER doctor. Yes. Interesting. Um, I have spent a little bit of, I mean, this is, I don't think you guys lived here. Maybe you did. When did you move to LA? June, uh, mid-June. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh wait, this mid-June. Like yes, we just a moved. month ago. Yes. <laughs> I just got here. Never mind. Um, yeah. So, uh, my girlfriend, my girlfriend had, this is all a long, stupid story, but just to say that um, she had like coronavirus symptoms. She's an immunocompromised person. We went to the ER a couple of times um, on her doctor's advice and once in an ambulance during the pandemic, like a couple months ago. And so you guys wouldn't have been here yet, but um it was certainly a wild experience, just even like, I mean, I'm so separated from that. I'm like the, the girlfriend that's driving the girlfriend, but to show up at the ER that we went to, um, you couldn't even pull in the, like, usually there'd be a place to drop off patients. Mm-hmm. That was not an open, you could not pull in that area. Mm-hmm. And there was a what I think of as like an army tent, like a medical tent, but it's like not anything that I'm used to seeing um, in the place where you usually would be, that would usually be the pull through driving area. That was um, an out, like an an outside triage area. And then all of the doors to the ER were open for ventilation. And then there was no actual waiting room inside the ER because it's, because for like for ventilation purposes. So it was Mm -hmm. literally like, you're triaged outside and then you were brought like through directly into um, a uh, bed in the back. And she was put into the like COVID ward. So then I left at that point. Um, But this is all just to say that like nothing looked like anything I've ever seen. So I can't even imagine beyond just like the long hours and the stress even for a doctor to like go through the visual changes, literally just that, or like the procedural changes to absorb all of that. I can't really imagine what that is, what that's been like in your household. Cause it's, I feel like my yeah. job has been totally different, but like, <laughs> I'm also not saving lives. Yeah. You know, I mean, the one thing I'm really grateful for about my fiance is that he, when we entered our relationship, you know, one of the things that he made, he, he conveyed to me was that stress is relative and that he never wanted to place our jobs on hierarchies, even though he was ostensibly saving lives. He considered the work that I was doing at Teen Vogue at the time to also be enriching lives um, and sometimes saving lives, depending. And I was really grateful to him for, for acknowledging that. But certainly during this pandemic, <laughs> the hierarchy <laughs> is undeniable. And, um, and it was interesting it was interesting to be with him as he tried to, I guess, figure out how to find space to still find hope when so many people were senselessly dying. How to make sense of the fact that a lot of these deaths were completely unavoidable, even at the very worst of this pandemic. Um, and that that is the fault of an apathetic and elitist government led by President Trump um, and his cronies and a denial and an ongoing denial of science that is 
Um, I'm not going to say unforgivable because I don't want to practice that in my life, but I I will say it is utterly reprehensible. And the final thing was that as a, you know, as a Black doctor, my fiancé was watching people who look like him and his family be affected by this virus the worst um, of anyone else in the hospital. And Queens is, you know, one of the most diverse Parts of the city of of a city in the in the entire world, I, I believe there's o- over 200 nationalities that um, coexist in Queens, and that's part of what makes Queens so special. Unfortunately, because of systemic discrimination in healthcare, you know, it's also what made Queens so vulnerable. And uh, I think my fiance then found himself being an intermediary or an interpreter of sorts to white doctors and white hospital administrators and white healthcare providers who didn't understand that it. Something as simple as saying that Black people are are dying more of the coronavirus, well, that's only true because, you know, Black people have also been boxed out of quality health care and mm-hmm. the uh, elitist barriers that are in place to prevent people from getting quality health care in this country. Um, and so he had to negotiate all of those things. And then, you know, once the movement for Black lives, you know, really erupted in the wake of uh, the passing of Mr. Floyd, um, and of course, the the many Black trans women um, who were also killed, uh, we saw those dynamics, you know, just really be heightened and the awareness around those dynamics be heightened in the hospital and in everyday life. And so the burden and the load he has had to carry um, just for being himself um, has been uh, remarkable to witness and also painful to witness. Um but, you know, it has also been, and I'm, I'm trying not to choke on my words here. This is gross. Ew. Um, I'm, you know, it's also been remarkable to witness that for the first time, you know, people get to see my fiance as the hero. I always knew he was. Oh, oh there are so many things to um, unpack in there. Uh, so I like actually took a few notes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but one, one thing that I think bears mention is it's there's the specificity of being a doctor and then there's something that I think you're also alluding to which I'm seeing everywhere which is like okay so now that black folks are being offered marginally an opportunity to speak that like there's so much extra work in that um and there's so much extra work for people of color that are in systems that have not, that have historically been white systems, which is like all systems. So I'm just, I've just have been watching that everywhere, you know? And I, I think that that, it's that, it's that, you know, unhelpful double-edged sword that like we, that I know as a queer person too, which is just like, oh, I, I absolutely want to be heard. And then also sometimes it's so exhausting to mm. when somebody actually starts listening because you're like, mm-hmm. oh, now I got to do all this extra work. Um, and I don't know. Are you Italian? I am asking? Italian, yes. <laughs> I too am Italian. <laughs> um, uh, because this is also just another thing that like I... So my partner is a mixed race um, Asian woman 
And it's just an interesting time to be a white partner because I just see all the extra work that she's having to do. And um, then I also don't want to, like she literally is having to sometimes attend meetings that are like about being a person of color where yeah. like, um, you know, then it's appropriate for her to speak, but then also she has to do the work of speaking, right? So mm -hmm. it's like just watching all of that and trying to a little bit be, um, just figure out like, okay, where's my support role in this moment? How yeah. are you navigating that? Just the, the idea of, um, I'm doing, I wish people could see what my hands are doing. I feel like I'm doing like a basketball move, but just like trying to adjust and go, okay, right now, this would be the support role right now. This would be the support role because it changes. It's not like a, mm -hmm. it's not a finite thing or, you know, to figure, it's not a fixed thing to figure out how to be a support, a support right. person. Um, I mean, it's a really good question. It's certainly something I feel like we, um, has been uh, a factor in our relationship, as I'm sure it's been in yours since the day that we very first met. You know, that we, in order for our love to thrive and to prosper, we do have to acknowledge, um, while people love to say things like, love is love and love conquers all, um, these catchphrases can feel really hollow in uh, a moment like this. And um, and so we did, from the very beginning, have to acknowledge how our experiences were different and how um, I had to um, make sure that I was making space for, I guess, just being open and receptive to understanding how those things were different. And um, I, I would like to say, and this is not for me to say, but I would like to say that I um, was understanding in those moments and, and, I, and I have definitely done the work to learn a lot and have not asked him to do that work for me. Uh, and that has, you know, that, that does require active, ongoing, daily commitments to work. It also required an ongoing, daily, and active commitment to thinking about who I am introducing my fiancé to, what situations and settings we are putting ourselves in. And I don't mean to say that as like, as a white person, I will just go to this event because I know it's going to be filled with other white people. It actually came to a point where I was like, why am I going to these events? Why am I putting myself in these situations where I'm going to a party with a bunch of white gay men and my fiance is going to be the only black person in the room? Why do I want to be in those spaces? You know? And so there were a lot of things that um, I had to change about my life. Um, and not because, not because like I, I had this partner, it was because like, I wanted to also make my life better. And I knew that in order to make my life better, there were going to have to be some hard changes. There are family members um, who supported Donald Trump in the election, who I have not spoken to since the election, since before the election. Um, there certainly are many uh, family outings, occasions, birthday parties, uh, weddings, even funerals that I have not been present at because of those very reasons. Um, wow. And those changes to... All I can say is that like I uh, I never felt like I was giving up something. I always felt like I was gaining something. Um and I think that my life is immeasurably better um for the changes that I've made. In terms of this particular moment, you know, I I think the biggest thing that uh or the biggest way that I've been supportive to my partner, <laughs> I just feel like sometimes I'm um he you know, he will come home and he will unload and he will feel maybe sometimes guilty about being angry because 
there is a double-edged sword to this era of uh, representation, which is, mm-hmm. should people feel grateful for being past the mic right now? Mm-hmm. And um, as someone who worked in the media and who learned directly from the people who were both, you know, my employees, but also my contributors, my partners, the fellow image makers, all of whom, you know, when I was at Condé Nast, I led three of the most diverse newsrooms in that in that company's entire history of over 100 years of publishing, Teen Vogue, uh, Allure, and then the founding of Them, which was Condé's first LGBTQ publication, also the first time that Condé Nast ever had a uh, trans executive editor um, who was empowered in leadership. And, you know, knowing the pitfalls of media representation and how hollow that representation can be, you know, when he does prime himself for media peer- appearances, we often have really heavy conversations about what risks he is going to take and, and what he is going to say and how he is going to say it. Um, and it's given me a really interesting insight into, I'm sure, how people prepared themselves to talk to me. You know what I mean? To realize that I was the white person, that people were wondering how how they could approach or how they could speak to about things. And it, it has caused a deep introspection of my own compl- complicity and the tokenization of media representation and the traps of media representation and, you know, the role that I unwittingly or wittingly played um, in those dynamics. So it's been a lot to digest. Hmm. What, what do you, um, I'm not sure if there is like a quick or easy answer, but, (laughs) but what do you mean when you say the role you played in tokenization? Um, Can you be more specific about that? Sure. Um, You know, the age of media that I entered into when we started at Teen Vogue, for example, was an age of identity is king on the internet or identity is queen, however you want to put it. And um, that was oftentimes uh, the manifested in a lot of folks writing essays about themselves um, or opening up or offering personal details about themselves and, and, and putting them on the internet. Teen Vogue in particular you know, we were a space where young people were sharing this information about themselves and it was often related to or uh, quote unquote pegged, as we say, to current news events. And I just think a lot about that push. And it wasn't unique to Teen Vogue, by the way. This was happening everywhere. This was happening at Bustle, at Cosmopolitan, at Refinery29. In fact, Refinery29 was where I learned, you know, the right. about, about this kind of model of journalism and it has evolved so much since since those early days. But I do think about those early days where people were really offering themselves in order to get a byline and, or in order to get published by by Teen Vogue. Mm. And I, I have thought a lot about, you know, being an editor and making those decisions and what I would change if I could go back. Um, and yeah, it's been it's been interesting to analyze for sure. That's a lot really of- interesting because I I oh go ahead, but but I Sorry, I was just going to say a lot of people say they have no regrets, um, but I I just want to be honest and say that I have quite a few. (laughs) And and I think that that's okay. I do think I've learned from them. And that's why, you know, but that doesn't also mean that I don't regret, um, you know, the role that I played in the media at the time, if that makes sense. I feel like that's complicated. No, I mean, that's super interesting. I think I hear... really hear what you're saying i wonder i mean i know that i am somebody who has like i mean i'm a stand-up comic i have sure benefited from the move i mean just looking at stand-up the idea that in the 90s you know jerry seinfeld was making a show that was where like the stand-up that he's doing is 
everybody's like, yes, this is what stand-up is, you know? And he's talking about peanuts or, you know, seatbelts or whatever. And that's just not the trend. It's the trend has been toward the personal everywhere. So, yeah. I mean, I, I, I am somebody who I know has, in some ways, I feel like I've suffered from this vibe of like sharing more and more and more and more and more myself excavation 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 i don't know what you're opting out of that i'm not trying to talk you out of your feelings i just I, <laughs> i'm like trying to imagine you being like that's not what teen vogue does and that stopping this absolute like waterfall in that direction um, I don't but think I hear I what you're saying like, I don't think yeah I don't claim yeah. to have that um, influence for sure I do think that ultimately the decisions that we made at Teen Vogue led to the website growing so fast and so mm-hmm. furious and becoming such a force within the halls of Condé Nast that you know that brand when I first joined it I was told by an ex- sorry I was told by an executive at Condé Nast this you might have one year left here. Like, are you sure you want to leave Refinery29 to come back to Teen Vogue? And I was like, I'll get, I guess I'll just kind of give it my best shot. And, you know, some really stellar stuff came out of, of our time there. And people got the opportunity and, or, you know what, let me rephrase that because that's a gross way of saying it. People were featured in Teen Vogue who had not been invited to those pages in 13 years of its publication running. And it did get to a place where it is today. And I'm so proud of Lindsay Peoples-Wagner, the current editor-in-chief, who's one of my close friends, Samita Mukhopadhyay, who is the executive editor, who's one of my very best friends in the world, um, and the incredible team who's still there who are making decisions that are pushing that brand forward. I definitely was a part of pushing it forward. And I look back now And I realize um, with the decisions that they're making now and the way that they are running the brand now, um, I realize how much better I could have been and and how much Mm. better the the publication could have been. Um, And again, while I regret many of the the decisions that were made or, or even my role in certain things, no, do I think that I could have opted out of it? I I probably would have been fired. I probably wouldn't have grown the numbers as fast. Teen Vogue may have been in jeopardy. And again, it just goes to show, you know, what I'm saying when I say regret is that like, when we operate in these systems, you know, we are cogs in a machine. And by being cogs in a machine, as someone who is in power in that machine, I was, you know, complicit. And and ultimately, everyone who was in power at that time was complicit, regardless of, of, uh, of one's identity or of one's place within the company. Um, but the, the, you know, I, what I mean to say by all of this is that the company and the overall media revenue structure and this idea of digital media being based on a purely numbers game and catering to advertisers is a capitalistic system that was always bound to exploit its workers and ultimately um, meet its demise. And I think those things are just, you know, now I look back at them and I see how inevitable they were. But in the early days, I believed um, that we were just doing dif- things differently and we were the exception to the rule. But I realize now that um, even though we were doing good things, we were not an exception to the rule. Is that clearer? Wow. Oh, yeah. I mean, also, like, I, you were you were clear the, the first time. I just, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't, it's so rare that you have anybody say, I wish I hadn't participated in this system or I would have done it differently. Like, that's just not a thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know what I, I mean? <laughs> Like I but, I, I, but I love that you said it because then I can ask more further questions. 
Um, yeah, it's un- I think it's unusual for someone to say, here are my regrets and let me like outline them for, outline them for you. <laughs> it's unusual. <laughs> there are some I'm keeping to myself, you know, some I'm saving for the memoir one day, but yeah, that, that's, that, that's the one that I've been thinking about the most for sure. <laughs> a little bit and talk about um the changes that happened at out while you were there and just like from i don't i don't necessarily it's totally fine if you feel that you want to get into um anything about what was going on structurally inside there but i'm Mm -hmm. my interest is in your decision to move the magazine from the vibe of like a free periodical or um there was a there's a direction toward high fashion and art that happened um while you were there Mm -hmm. and i'm very curious about why you think what value you think that brings to our community? Because oh. I thought it was really valuable, but I, I'm assuming that you had reasons that you moved in that direction. You know, I've always just felt like we deserve beauty and we deserve beautiful things because queer and trans people have been offering and giving beauty to the world since the beginning of time. And there was a point in our history where we were valued for those contributions. Um, and we are, we were even revered for those contributions. Um And I think as things moved along, what I saw um, with Out was, Out was was a magazine that had beautiful, breathtaking, high-quality visuals. Um, It certainly had its blind spots around race, and it certainly had its blind spots um, around being inclusive of the broader LGBTQ movement, um, and also uh, around honoring celebrities who were effectively gay-baiting. And again, it's like, I can critique those things for sure and spend my time doing so. However, much like what I just talked to you about, where I have regrets about the beginnings of my career and the time period that I existed in, um, all of those things require, a critique of all of those things requires context of where the movement was um, Mm. and who was being uh, given front and center spotlight of the movement. So anyways, I say all of that to say, I wanted to take the magazine in a different direction because I was given the opportunity to do so. And I believed that it, I believe that it was worthy of it. I believe that a publication should exist that had a that had high art on its covers, um, whose pictures would be featured at the Freeze Art Fair, um, whose photos and portraits of community activists and organizers should not be um, an afterthought of coverage, but be given the same amount of quality and attention and beauty and glamour um, as you know, photographing a model in in runway samples, you know. Those things are a no-brainer to me. And in order to make those things happen, I had to 
changed the entire composition of the team. You know, Out was a place before that, you know, really didn't have more than one person of color or more than one woman or trans person on its masthead at a time. And that was not indicative of the LGBTQ movement that I knew was representative of our future. Also representative of our past, by the way. They were just completely sidelined and marginalized. But it was my opportunity to to bring more people into the fold. And that's exactly what I got to do. And even though it was a tragic story and it was too short-lived and it was also a living and and breathing nightmare most of the time that I was there. Um, It's also the work that I've done in my career that I am the most proud of um, and the team that I've worked with who I am the most proud of. Purely, you know, a lot of that has to do with the resistance we were facing internally um, and also, of course, the external pressures that were brought upon, um, you know, the, 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 I I guess you could call them external pressures. People were not getting paid and they needed to be paid and the company had mismanaged its finances and that was, you know, that was uh, uh, exploitative and abusive and it was not right. Um, And we did what we could to navigate that ethically and advocate for fair pay. And we also did what we could to, at the same time, innovate the editorial. And um, it was certainly a challenge. Yeah, I I mean... (laughs) I bet it was. <laughs> um, I, I also, you know, another thing that maybe you're like in a, in a you might be in an actual, in, in a unique position to speak about is um, like, I guess, I guess how we get a sort of white cis gay man. Um, like a Fire Island gay who is interested in sometimes I feel that the rest of the this is this is like personal and anecdotal Mm -hmm. experience yeah I just feel I feel that I feel that sometimes there is just nothing that I have in common or that I can draw upon to sort of get that person's attention or care. Mm. You know, I, I, this, that's just a, like a personal, I think that the, I mean, I've, I've talked about, this is not like the first time I've ever talked about this on the podcast, but I just feel, um, especially as like a sort of on the, masculine of center spectrum of lesbian slash queer queer gender non-conforming but possibly also femme vibe like i just think that that a personal feeling i have had is that that side of the gay community seems to have like almost no use for me where Hmm. i would have like a lot of use for them which is like um i think a lot of those folks have worked their way into industries where um white women have have power mm-hmm. like fashion, fashion or yeah um yeah. some amount of like the the magazine or print industry things like publishing like mm. um and i just like what would you do you have any thoughts on <laughs> how that is like reconciled. I mean, is it just like people like you need to get in charge at 
out and it needs to go well and then mm. you need to pass it like you need to keep like it's like a baton that we need to keep passing for, and i'm also obviously not the most marginalized member of our community but it just feels like that i remember a couple of years ago i like went to a screening of something that was about the hiv aids epidemic but told like only from a cis white male perspective and yep. the creators were there and they were like sobbing and being like, we can't believe we got to tell our stories. And this was like, you know, in the 2010s. And mm-hmm. I just was sitting there like, I understand that you, like you internalize an experience of marginalization to a degree where you can't see that it's got, it's there, that there's a further. Yep. Right. Whiteness and maleness are strong. Yes. That's my very long question. Yes. Yes, no, and gosh, and and by the way, it's not like I emerged, you know, understanding this. It, that this was a, a part of an awakening that happened for me gradually over a period of time. It feels like mm. it happened like hyper accelerated because I was working in the media and witnessing, you know, right as I was like a senior editor at Finery Twenty Nine was when um, Michael Brown was killed by a police officer in Ferguson, and then. I remember, you know, I was I was with my white gay boyfriend at the time and his family, and they were watching the demonstrations in Ferguson. And ironically enough, I would later become, you know, really close with Janetta Elzey, who was one of the the most, you know, present and, and active organizers in Ferguson at the time. Anyways, I remember my I got into a fight with my partner because he was talking about violence. He was talking about the violence of the rioters. And I didn't need to have an advanced comprehension of race in America to know that that was racism at play. I didn't. I just knew it was wrong. And we ended up yelling at each other in front of his parents. I remember his his mom intervened on my behalf. And she said, Michael, I think what he's trying to say is that there's a lot we don't understand and we can't leap to judgment. And I was like, that's a good start, you know? Like, that's that's... Anyway, so his mom intervened on, on my behalf and said, you know, I think what Philip is trying to communicate is that there's stuff we don't understand and we shouldn't leap to judgment in this moment. Um, and I, and that was the end of our relationship right there. You know, like a month later we broke up and I, I understood that there was wow. more work that I had to do. And I, and I definitely got to work on, on doing that. That meant picking up books. That meant engaging in hard conversations. That meant engaging in hard conversations with my white family, um, and anyways, I mean all of this to say that, like like I said earlier in our conversation, it is work that you have to do. But like, if you operate from understanding that there are basic principles of human dignity, um, the work is not that that complicated, right? We often make it sound like this work is like, you need a college degree or to be an academic to understand anti-racism um, or anti-trans, you know, anti-transphobia, right? That's not the case, you know? It's it's a lot simpler than that. So I, I want to just preface whatever I'm about to say with that, that I was also at a place where I would not be proud of the person that I was before for, for my own ignorance. Now, having said that, what you're getting at is that white cis gay men occupy the most privilege within the LGBTQ community, and then they are the weakest links in this ongoing fight for equality because... They have historically, right, we saw this in the HIV AIDS crisis, and we certainly saw this after the fight for marriage equality, they abandon the fight once their rights are accomplished 
Meanwhile, historically, trans people and lesbians and, and other queer folks and gender nonconforming folks have linked arms with white gay men when we needed their help the most. You know, I'm working on an oral history of the AIDS crisis right now in terms of from a fashion perspective. And I am hearing time and time again how women showed up, even though women weren't even included in the definition of HIV AIDS at the time. Um, and then how a bunch of gay men abandoned the, the movement um, and and ultimately left a lot of people to continue the the fight, right? Once these once drugs came available onto the market. And again, it's like these blanket um statements I'm making are are of course uh it's more complicated than that, but it is a good summary, I think, of of how people felt who were not white gay men uh, at the time, and and certainly still now. And 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 I, when I talked to Anne Northrup for my podcast, she echoed a lot of that actually. Hmm. And it's complicated because white gay men use homophobia and their own feelings of being oppressed and being marginalized, which are valid, by the way. I, I'm not dismissing anyone's feelings that way, but they use those feelings as a deflection against other people's feelings and their own wrongdoings. They say, how can I be homophobic? Sorry, how can I be misogynistic when I'm a gay man? Or how can I be racist when when I'm a gay man? I understand oppression. I love Black people. I've slept with Black men, for example, right? This is a common thing we hear um, from white gay men. And that is gaslighting. It is It is denying someone's very real and valid experiences um, because you think that you have experienced marginalization when we know that marginalization does not look the same depending on who you are, right? That marginalization is co- compounded um, based on the various intersections of people's identities. And I think it would be liminal to say that it takes white gay men to bring people into the fold, perhaps like I did at Out Magazine. That reinforces a white savior um, mentality, I did not do what I did it out because I wanted to be a white savior. I did it because I, I it was the right thing to do. And also because I thought, frankly, that I was well-equipped to be the editor-in-chief of Out Magazine. Um, but right now, what we're also seeing in this moment is not just white people rising to the occasion, but lots of queer and trans people of color who are coming into their own power and who don't need um, the necessary endorsement from white folks to succeed. And this is a radical shift. And this is the shift that I think will actually bring us forward. Um, But if I were a white person still occupying a lot of power in the media industry, I would definitely be asking myself how I can amplify those voices and or step aside entirely to make sure that those voices are the ones being prioritized. Well, shit, Philip. I mean, here's the dang thing we're like at our time and I have so many follow-up questions for you. Like <laughs> I have a heart out at 11, um, which that it's important to mention the time because when you release the podcast, everybody starts it. They know what time it's going to be over. So they go back from your anyway. Um, but I have heart out 11, which is the time it currently is as we're recording. And I have many follow-up questions, including what if you're not born with this innate sense of right and wrong, are you just supposed to be the boyfriend who's broken up with? Does that is that how we improve the queer community? We break up with the boyfriends who don't understand social justice? Anyway, these are follow-up questions for a different <laughs> podcast um, at a different time. But I want to thank you so much for your time today. I cannot believe how quickly that went. And I also 
want to ask you to shout out a queero, which is a person, place, or thing that made you feel like you could be who you are today. Oh, my, oh, you know what? I have so many queeros, but I, I think the, the people that I'm thinking of right now um, are my best friends, Raquel Willis, um, who famously led a crowd of over 15,000 people at the Brooklyn rally in March for Black Trans Lives in a chant of Black Trans Power. Um, Raquel was my executive editor at Out, and now um, I can't really imagine my life or my being without her. She is beautiful. She is um intelligent, she is compassionate, and she has a radical vision for the future. And it's a it's a a joy and an honor to witness people recognize her power the way that she finally deserves it. So Raquel Willis, um, and also my friend Kimberly Drew, um, who right now is, um, if you can, her book, um, Black Futures, is available for pre-order. It's a book she is co-authoring with our other friend, Jenna Wortham, um, and Kimberly, uh, and, and the friendship that we've developed over the past couple of years has really shown me the importance of platonic intimacy and of opening up to people um, who are your friends and treating them as though they are your family. Um, And I'm grateful for the lessons I've learned from her. It is Leo season and she is a Leo. So if I didn't mention her, I would get fire breathed all over me. So Kimberly and Raquel are my queeros for today. Well, thank you, Philip. And I think actually Raquel is booked on an episode of the show in a couple of weeks. So phew. Finally, circles will be closed. I think that's true. Um, Anyway, you're a gem. So lovely to speak with you. And thank Thank you. Thank you.